Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm Cindy Howes. Thanks for finding this podcast. Oh man, Katie Jones's vibe is truly chill with that special something you experience in a real artist. So Katie's got that thing that should propel her to great heights, like her music is spot on in a way that is pretty rare and as a human being it feels like you're in the presence of some kind of greatness am i exaggerating i don't know but this woman is wicked cool her backstory starts in portland maine with her hippie christian parents who met at a commune in the 60s katie learned violin using the suzuki method which is based in learning music by ear After violin came training in piano, viola, French horn, cello, and drums. She discovered songwriting when her mom read her diary, and she found it as a way to simultaneously express and deflect her feelings. Then she finally picked up the guitar in the church band and realized that this would be the vessel for her songwriting. Katie moved to Cambridge 10 years ago to do service work as an AmeriCorps volunteer and has found much inspiration and joy in service, similar to the feeling she found creating music. The new album, Tossed, was finished during the pandemic. She worked remotely with her friend and producer, Daniel Radin. He provided equipment and she recorded her parts at home. The electric guitar finds itself at the forefront of the album, so we have that ever-interesting conversation about electric versus acoustic. This album feels like a fully realized version of Katie's sound and her awesome spirit. I'm excited for what's to come for this impressive musician and very happy to have her on the podcast. We'll take a listen to a song from her new album, Tossed. This is actually the album opener, Light On. And then we'll get to our conversation with Katie Jones on Basic Book. So I don't want to kiss you with the light on, with the light on. Because in the dark, the blackest parts of my heart feel at home. Because in the dark, the blackest parts of my heart feel at home. Just wrap my arms around you in and 
Katie Jones, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's so great to see you. Lovely to see you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. I feel like we hung out for like 30 seconds at Folk Alliance in February of 2020. It was like right before the world shut down. Right. It was a great 30 seconds. It was. Uh, I have I have fond memories of it. I feel like you, uh, if it's po- if it's possible to like accost someone with just like kindness, that's I feel like my memory of you. You stopped oh. in the hall and you were like, "You're Katie Jones. I'm Cindy House," and I was excited to meet you because I had heard a lot about you. Yeah, I was also looking for. This is a little bit of a tangent. I was looking for Ally McGurk because I had Michelle Obama earrings that I just bought. Yes, I and remember I'd, that. I'd given her one, and I was looking for her to get it back, and I ran into you. Mm-hmm. So my questions for you are, are you Katie Jones, and have you seen Allie McGurk? She has my <laughs> Michelle Obama earring. I have a vivid memory of that. Yeah. And were you, I think you were wearing one of them? Yes, I had yeah. one. Yep. And then I think I had Allie's other earring in my ear. Wow. In the germiest place on earth. Mm. Yeah, folk I, often, alliance. <laughs> I think about Folk Alliance a lot and think like, wow, that was like, we really went out with a bang before we couldn't see right. anyone. It was like, let's cram like 100 people in one right. hotel room. Three weeks later, it would have been a disaster. We would have taken out the entire folk industry. Yeah, I sometimes I wonder if Folk Alliance, you know, started the pandemic. <laughs> All right, let's get down to business here. We got a lot of things to go over, uh, and let's start at the beginning. You are from Portland, Maine, and I want to hear more about your parents. You say they met at a Christian hippie commune in the 60s, so tell us about your parents and also set the scene for what your home was like growing up. Yeah, my dad is from California. He grew up in Southern California, and my mother is from Memphis, Tennessee, And um, they met in Santa Barbara in the little uh, part of the city called Isla Vista, where um, a lot of people that go to UCSB live. And they basically, a bunch of people around like 1820s um, got excited about God and Jesus in the 60s and all kind of moved out to California because there was like this thing called the Jesus Movement and... um, a lot of people were speaking and it was, it just was this like kind of radical time where people were trying to kind of live in commune. Um, as it has been described to me, it was trying to recreate the early church, um, as one might read in the new Testament of the Bible where everyone kind of shared everything and everything was in commune and kind of lived in community. And so there's all, I have just, years and years of hearing stories about, you know, um, they occupied all these apartment buildings and just like went through and like knocked down all of the walls. (laughs) So they were just like all connected and people, they would have like house church meetings where like someone or like a couple would just like randomly say like, Oh, by the way, this is our wedding. Um, and so (laughs) my parents, they, (laughs) They, there's a picture in my parents in my parents' house of like of the two of them on a couch. My dad's in this like corduroy suit, or probably just a corduroy blazer. My mom's wearing like a khaki skirt, and there's a sign that someone painted on the wall that looks like a child did it, and it just says "Ken loves Linda," and that was their wedding. And 
the whole wedding is on audio tape. And in the middle of the wedding, my dad invites all the children to come up and he sings, um, plays the guitar and sings House at Pooh Corner by Kenny Loggins. So that is uh, what I come from. But they decided in the 80s to move to Portland, Maine with like 20 of their closest friends to start a church. And that kind of fizzled before I was born. So, um, but a lot of the people stayed. So I grew up in Portland in this, it was an interesting situation because especially in New England, um, you know, it's a lot of, where I guess in any part of the world, it's common to maybe have family around. Um, and so I grew up and all my friends had, you know, their aunts, their uncles, their grandparents. And I just had like 20 families that were very culturally West Coast and all lived in my neighborhood um, who were all basically like my aunts and uncles, but my actual family lived in California and Tennessee. Mm. Oh, and so you asked about uh, what was the vibe of the house. It was very West Coast. I was saying this to someone the other day that even though I've lived in New England almost my whole life, um, my housemates and I were talking about growing up and, you know, calling adults like Mr. and Mrs. and just different things that are very New England. And my parents were always like, before I went to someone's house, they were like, you, you need to call them Mr. and Mrs. You can't, you know, you need to be formal because my, the culture of my family was very California, um, and Southern. And my dad was just like the weird guy who would like show up at your house for dinner and like lie down on the floor and start stretching um just like a very like hippie (laughs) vibe um so it's it's interesting that they like recognized that like that wasn't cool in other places you know I say that they were prepping me but I may have just like figured out on my own after being like hey Janet and like someone's mom being like no no it's Mrs. Brown and I was like oh oh god sorry um, that must, that's gotta be a real wake up call yeah. for a young hippie child. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And we would spend every summer, um, large chunks of the summer, either in California or Memphis. And so whenever I would return from one of those, it was like a lot more, oops, like I did, I did the wrong thing. I was either too Californian or, or too, uh, too Southern. Um, but I would say to summarize my household, it was just always full of people. Um, even though that church community had disbanded that mentality of having a million people in your house and just having your doors open and um you know inviting random people to holidays that was definitely the vibe we always had we had a small house but there were always people randomly living with us for like months at a time so how did that experience help shape your relationship to community I think it it was incredibly instrumental. I think I don't know. There's not a time in my life where I didn't have rich community, and I, I'm even though that's true, I it's not something I take for granted because I I think it's a tremendous gift and um, not something that everyone has. Um, but I think the mixture of seeing the example from my parents of, you know, what, what you have in this life is meant to be shared, especially if you've been given a lot, um, has made me always want to be generous with what I have generous with my home. 
and kind of inviting people into my life and making them feel welcome. So um, both like in my personal life with with friends um, and in my vocation and doing community work and even with songwriting, like so much of it is like inviting people in. Mm. Um, I think it's yeah a big part of that. I have a couple questions about religion in reading about and listening to a song on your new record, Mystic. Um, it's very complex what the song is about, but just to like sum it up, it was inspired by tra- transitioning your mindset from like rigid evangelical Christian culture to a more open spiritual mindset. And so you are from that like conservative evangelical Christian hippie culture, which is interesting. Um, and then you also say that you've noticed people who grew up like that transition from either high church church or post-evangelical communities. So a couple questions, just like tactical questions, like what is high church post-evangelical and what was your religion like growing up? Yeah, I, so one thing I'll say off the bat is that I have spent pretty much my entire life in various types of churches. So, um, I, there is a lot of like technical language that I find is like true of any, any like one that anything you're like really into, like there's like all the like sub genres that people like that aren't as into it are like, what are you talking about? Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, or like punk and hardcore and like, yeah. Um, (laughs) the church that I grew up, yeah, it was interesting. So my, I described like my parents had come from this, what would be described in the kind of theological world as like very low church, which means not a lot of, um, if, if, but low to high would be like lowest is we're all meeting in the living room. And I guess this is a church service and we're just with friends. And then highest would be like Catholicism where there's a lot or, or Greek Orthodox or any Orthodox church where there's a lot of history and, um, just rules and customs structure. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, and also thus like a lot of consistency around the world in like, if you go to a Catholic church around the world, it's probably going to like feel similar. Mm -hmm. Um, so they came from that tradition of very low church, um, where there's not a pastor. It's kind of just someone speaks. Um, but then that kind of fell apart and they ended up, interestingly enough, raising us in a Baptist church in Portland that they have told me and my brother, they just kind of chose it because it had a great program for kids and there were a lot of kids around and we hadn't been in the area long. Um, so I grew up thinking I was a Baptist. My brother then grew up and, uh, went to theology school and decided you know, to inform us all that we weren't, or that we were Baptist, or my parents would always say, we're not Baptist. And my brother then later was like, we are Baptist. Anyways. um, (laughs) Is he older than you? He is. He's uh, uh, two years older. Um, And uh, yeah, my brother and my dad both went to theology school and then decided to do their careers in taxes. So interesting, uh, uh, you know, iconic duo. (laughs) Um, (laughs) so I grew up in a, in a, a Baptist church, um, until I went away to college. That was my, yeah. 
Wow. What is your religion like now? Um, it's a great question. Uh, I ask myself that every day. Um, I am a part of a church in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's actually how I ended up living here. I moved here 10 years ago to work at a church um, through uh, an AmeriCorps program. Um, and it is on the... <laughs> It is a, a Christian, non-denominational, very uh, more progressive, low church. Um, Sounds more like medium church. <laughs> I would say, yeah, it's medium. It's like we're not in – we're actually in an old uh, renovated Catholic church. So it's really doing – it's really getting creative. Ooh, medium um, high. But like so, so – like perfect when when they bought the building and and redesigned it they like literally flipped it backwards so like we go we like enter the back of like we enter the front of the church and like face the back which i just think is there it is a little more practical um but i just think it's like kind of a hilarious um, (laughs) thing that they're like we're not Catholic. We're going to literally like have backwards church. Um. (laughs) (laughs) That'll show them. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's a, uh, how would I describe my religion? Um, I would describe myself as a person of faith. Um, I, um, yeah, I think my faith journey has, has looked very differently throughout the years. Um, I think as I get older, I think when I was younger, my, the faith I was brought it up in, especially in the church community, was very like, these are the questions and these are the answers and you can be sure. Um, and that was in some ways really nice and really um, like safe. And I think as I get older, I have fewer answers um, and I'm living a little bit more in, in the mystery of things. But um, I am still someone that like tries to connect with God and, um, thinks that, um, you know, Jesus and the the teachings of Jesus and, and the, just like the beauty of, uh, community and what he preached and, um, is still something that I really try to live my life by as best I can. But, um, finding a lot of, um, joy and purpose in, and like enlightenment in a lot of, new types of, uh, well, new to me, the, uh, theology that's a, a little bit more progressive and talking about um, God as a God of, you know, justice and equity and um, that a lot of voices that I just didn't grow up reading, mostly because they they're like black and brown um, folks and indigenous folks just having mm. a, like a very different take on theology. Wow. We'll get back to religion. <laughs> I'm sure. I wasn't prepared to talk about religion. I should have been, but. All these questions are about you, Katie Jones. (laughs) (laughs) I read that you are a notorious daydreamer, which is such a great description. You have a new song on the record called Daydreamer. And you say, I like to think people who daydream just have a rich inner life, which is cool. Um, I want to know about your experience with daydreaming from a young person to an adult. This is something that I can talk about because I've been thinking a lot about this recently. Um, So 
I, ever since I can remember, uh, have been kind of scolded in pretty much every setting, uh, you know, starting with school, at home, church, um, for daydreaming and for, you know, drifting off. I, at, in growing up in school, I, my mom said she would always kind of go into parent teacher conferences, like with her eyes squinted a little bit, like with her hand out to shake them kind of like, what are you going to say? She said, every, <laughs> everyone, like the general theme was like people, my teachers really enjoyed me cause I was, you know, a charming smooth talker, um, and very, <laughs> very <laughs> outgoing. <up> collar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was finger guns. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh gosh. Um, no, I was like a likable kid, so they didn't want to get me in trouble, but I was always in trouble for, uh, I was like the classic kid that right at the end of the teacher being like explaining everything, I would raise my hand and be like, what are we doing? Um, (laughs) so I, yeah, like, I think it's something that, um, has always been true, just getting kind of lost in thought, um, not even realizing it kind of like whether I'm like driving and then suddenly I'm like how did I get here and I realize I you know I've just been thinking about something um or you know struggling to to pay attention in in school or being present to um even sometimes when I'm playing shows um like I'll just I'll realize wow I just played like seven songs and I was thinking about <laughs> like what like a uh, gossip girl or something um but uh yeah so I think it was always something that I um, felt like guilty about. And I remember being just told like, you know, this is something you need to stop doing. You just like need to get, get it under control. You need to be present. And it's something that there's certain moments in our lives where we, it's good to be present. (laughs) There's a lot of parts of life where it's good to be present. And I, I want to be present often. Um, but I, in the last couple of years have tried to, and specifically the last few months have really tried to like be a little bit kinder with myself, um, and not have like so much shame about, um, not being able to control, um, my mind in like every moment. Um, and then just kind of starting to like explore like, well, what's happening when I daydream when I, what am I thinking about and realizing, you know, most of the times I write songs, that's that's what's happening like uh, you know I remember even today I was on a walk and I was trying to figure something out and then all of a sudden I I 30 minutes later I realized like I had written half a song and that wasn't something I had planned on and um, you know that doesn't always happen when I daydream it's Mm. not always productive but um, just trying to look at it in more of a positive light and more of a gift rather than just having these negative messages all the time of like, well, this is something bad about you that you need to change. Mm. So that quote of, you know, people having a rich inner life, it's a little bit tongue in cheek. Um, <laughs> but I do, that is what I'm trying to tell myself is like, yeah, it's, it's actually fine. It just means I'm enlightened in this moment. And Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So interesting to then learn that you started playing violin using the Suzuki method, which is based on learning music by ear, like really listening and paying attention and not daydreaming. <laughs> yes. What was it like for you to learn that way? And how did learning by ear impact the way you listen to music and otherwise? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I've... um I've thought a lot about how 
Suzuki has... So I think that the best asset that Suzuki has offered me um, is just being able to kind of pick things up by ear um, musically um, and just being able to like like hear a song and figure it out or not be able, you know, if someone's like, can you play this song and not having the charts, like being able to kind of figure it out. I do think Suzuki um, lent itself to that. I think the, I mean, the thing about Suzuki is that you don't, you don't really have a, a choice in terms of, um, you know, tuning out or tuning in because it's the other thing about Suzuki is repetition. So you they will make you play twinkle twinkle like 700 times so even if you're tuned out for the first 50 like you're you're gonna get it um and i think it actually um was helpful because i didn't have to study i didn't have to like read the um like you know the sheet music um and i could just kind of like hear over and over and over um, what was happening and eventually kind of just like tune in. The other thing is Suzuki growing up was extremely communal. Um, so there were like a lot of people around you all doing the same thing. And I think the last important ingredient was that my teacher was absolutely terrifying. So I was, pre- <laughs> I was very present to, <laughs> to those moments. You even responded. The- yeah. You responded to fear. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you identify as a storyteller first and a musician second in like training and knowing all those different instruments. Um, I want to know like how you came to love storytelling, listening to, and also telling stories and where that joy lives for you. I have always loved telling stories. Um, I have very early memories of writing short stories. I had this little binder. It was turquoise, pink, and purple. I still have it at home. That's a great color combo. It really was. It's why I've kept it. And, like, they don't make them like they used to. Um, And I, <laughs> I had a series of stories that I would write, and they all had, like, the same theme. It was always, like, the little blank that lost its blank. So like the little (laughs) pencil that lost its tip, the little shoe that lost its lace. And I must've written like dozens of these stories. And I was really into story webs. I think I learned that maybe in, in elementary school, like how to, how to make a story. And like, you start with like plot and setting and then like it webs out. My problem was my webs always got bigger and bigger and bigger. And so I never finished any of these stories they never (laughs) resolved (laughs) um so I don't know maybe that's why I got into songwriting because it was like all right this is a manageable story um Mm. that I don't or maybe I already I already know the ending so I can I can tell it um but yeah I don't I don't know exactly because I wasn't a huge reader as a kid like I I read I you know, here and there, but I just, I've always loved, like, I was always the kid that would, like, come back from, like, playing outside and have some, like, fantastical story to tell. I was definitely always viewed, all of my stories uh, in my family were always viewed with a little bit of, like, mm-hmm, like, did that actually happen? <laughs> um, 
just like always like a little bit of a stretch. Um, and to this day, I mean, even in like groups of friends as adults, like if there's some communal story, like the go-to is like, I just have Katie tell it. Cause like, she's, you know, she loves to tell stories. Um, so <laughs> I think there's something about, there's something about live storytelling that I love because you get to see people. You get, it's like a two way street. You get to see people's reactions and then kind of feed off their energy. And like, you can tell, okay, like they're really like driving with like this part, um, or I should like dig into this, like this is getting a response. And I think that is, um, very similar to playing live shows. And that's, um, I think, you know, I'm grateful for all the, the live stream opportunities this past year, but it is so different, um, to not have that two way energy where you're like, you can just see joy or sorrow or laughter, um, Mm. coming from the, from the audience. And that's something that in its various forms has always been, um, something I've been drawn to throughout my life. You went to Belmont in Nashville for writing and philosophy. Can you talk more about the interest in philosophy and how that intersects with your desire to keep asking questions? Absolutely. Uh, So (laughs) I remember when I stepped into the philosophy department at Belmont, there was this quote on the wall and it was a Kierkegaard quote. Um, and uh, I can't I can't quote it perfectly. I, used, I had it on my wall until earlier this year. But it's basically like a series of questions that are like, who am I? What am I? How did I come to be here? Why was I not consulted? Where is the <laughs> where is the director? I want to see him. And I it just stopped me in my tracks and it felt like someone had understood me for the first time in my life. Like I I feel like as like a tiny person laying in bed at night, I was like reciting that Kierkegaard quote like every night, but just like didn't obviously not in those words, but like though I've just was such an angsty kid. I was always like, but like, why are we here? And like, what's going on? And like, um, what's real and like what what is the mind and what are thoughts like (laughs) it was just like like a really high college kid but I was like seven and I was just like ah um so there I think I've always just been really interested in in kind of being and and like the meaning I guess like the meaning of everything and and certainly um have explored that in in faith in church settings and then also just I think philosophy like teaching learning how to think and learning how throughout history different people thought about being um was just so interesting to me and it felt like a place where it was okay to be like freaking out about existence um, and that was encouraged. And those were the the kinds of conversations we were having. Um, That's what happens when you have low church. <laughs> so No true. rules, no structure. That's true. I didn't have any Should of these have... problems. I was raised, raised Catholic. You know what the rules are. Highest of the high. I was remember like... one time I was uh, 
was dating somebody and we were talking about like different ways to like use shampoo. And I was like, well, this is how you use shampoo. And he's like, that's right, because we don't ask questions about anything. We just do what we're told. <laughs> and I was like, exactly. Oh, like man. it makes the world so much better. No, it yeah. doesn't. Is, You're right, Katie. Is there like a Catholic doctrine on shampoo? Because I feel like they do have like they have like rulings on most things. Right, you stand away from the shower head <laughs> because to stand towards the shower head is perverted. Well, we stand towards the shower head because you know we flip the Catholic Church backwards right. <laughs> at our church. So <laughs> interesting. Um, so. You moved to Cambridge 10 years ago for an AmeriCorps uh, volunteership, volunteerism, is volunteerist. Ism is right. Uh, You also got your master's at Boston College in social work, and you have worked in community engagement and youth development. How does your experience of your youth impact your desire to do this particular type of work? Oh, of my youth, like as a youth growing up? Yeah, as a youth, a youth. <laughs> as a youth. Um, that's a great question. I, it's, well, it's interesting. I think like I could take it in two directions. I'm, see, I'm discovering myself right alongside you, Cindy. Um, <laughs> part of me, so I, I realize, uh, you know, growing up, I grew up in Maine, as we talked about, and I grew up in a neighborhood that was super, you know, full of kids. It was very safe. You know, we would, my parents were very, we didn't have it. We only had a TV in the winters. So in the summer it was like, all right, find something to do. So very just like finding friends around the neighborhood and and building community and getting into mischief and playing laser tag. Um, and also just having a really, really tremendous amount of adults who cared about me who were not my parents um who genuinely loved me and wanted to see me thrive and I think in the work that I do and have done for the last 10 years um I want to you know I want to be at the at the very very least like apart from all the systemic change that you know I hope to be a part of and have hoped to be a part of throughout the years I just want to be someone who, you know, a, a loving, caring, supportive adult um, for some, for a young person who maybe has that and maybe doesn't. Maybe just, maybe I'm just one of many. Maybe I'm the only one they have. And to be able to see the relationships that I've built through the years, um, you know, kids I met when they were eight years old who are in college now and um, just, having that relationship and being a consistent person in their life. Um, I think that's something every young person deserves. And unfortunately, it's not something every young person has. So Mm -hmm. I do think I was incredibly privileged in so many ways um, growing up the way that I did. And, um, And then also, I think more on the systemic level. So I studied macro social work, which is more looking at, uh, policies, programs, organizations, um, that can either hinder or uh, advance um, equity and access. And, you know, just realizing I grew up as a white girl in Maine with two parents in a middle-class neighborhood. And um, there's a lot of stuff that I was very ignorant to that, you know, because I 
took it for granted. And so kind of interrogating, looking at the systems that young people, um, particularly in communities of color, which is mostly the communities that I've worked in in Boston and Cambridge, um, just things that kids are up against that like I didn't have to deal with, um, whether it's racism, whether it's public schools being inadequate um, or, you know, violence, just there's so many things. And so if I can, I've just wanted to be a part of um, affecting positive change on both like an individual and, and a macro level. Well, the new album Tossed um, is out now. This episode's being released on April 1st and it came out March 5th. Um, it's yes. Great, great record. Um, and Thank the recording you. experience for you was pretty different this time around working with Daniel Radin from the band Future Teens. I loved the story about how like the pandemic started, everything shut down, and then you recorded. Daniel just like dropped the recording equipment off and you did your own vocals and fiddle thanks to your, I don't know, did you play fiddle as well as your roommate? No, just uh, just my roommate, Emily. Okay, yeah. cool. And, and like how the opposite of like that must have just been the opposite of like what you had experienced before. He's just like, okay, go ahead. Um, but how can you talk about how you guys work together in the sense of like flow and how you empowered each other? Yeah, working with Daniel was absolutely amazing. Um, I would definitely recommend to anyone out there who <laughs> is looking for a producer um, I, yeah, I wasn't surprised because, um, Daniel's someone who I've known for a few years. He's made, um, he used to be in a band, the novel ideas, um, that was like more in the folk scene. And then I, he started doing some production stuff and had worked with my good friend Haley Sabella on a record and then did a, a couple other records. And I just really liked them. And then every time I met him, I was just like, this person is so kind, and like kind and gentle and just doesn't seem like he would bring unless he's like completely like Jekyll and Hyde. Like, I don't think he's going to get in the <laughs> studio and be like, all right, here's what's going to happen. Um, yeah. And we so we I think just from the very beginning, it felt really low pressure because it I think we both went into it like from the get go being like, I really want to work with you. Um, which is always a great place to start when you're partnering <laughs> with someone. Um, and I think because I trusted him, I was able to not have... So it was interesting because like, I think I, it could have been easy for me to come in kind of with my defenses up from previous experiences, being like, all right, like right, I'm not going to take any input from anyone, which of course would... That would be a terrible idea. But um, because I trusted him, I was a lot more receptive. Um, and he's he would always just like offer a gentle suggestion. Like, what about what if you what if you did this? Just just try it once. We don't have to do it. Yeah. And um, it was. Yeah, I, I would say like at least 50 percent of the time I would. Well, I would say 100 percent of the time I would be like, absolutely not. And I'd be like, that's a terrible idea. I hate that. And then. I would try it begrudgingly and then it would grow on me. And I think some of the, my favorite parts of the record are things that Daniel, they were his ideas and um, just like helping me, f whether it was like, Hey, I think we should 
have like seven guitars on this or I'm going to play a nylon string guitar at the end and it's going to sound like weird and beachy and um, (laughs) or, you know, I think you should double the chorus. I think you should go right into the second verse, like just things that I think now I'm like, oh, it's like such a stronger song. Um, So I we live 10 minutes apart. So I would just go to his basement. We would just kind of chip away at songs. I would play them for him. And then he would we would just kind of start bouncing ideas off of each other um and I would bring like reference tracks of you know songs that I really liked that um I was kind of like thinking of um what were some of those songs Julia Jacqueline um and I have to choose a song uh Body um Body by Julia Jacqueline is like one of my favorite songs from the past couple years Time Fighter by Lucy Dacus has just this like insane rock breakdown in the middle which I don't really think we have an insane rock breakdown on on the record but um a lot of like fairly rock and roll it's definitely a lot more rock and roll than my (laughs) my last stuff thank you so much for still allowing me on basic folk of course Uh, (laughs) um, but right on the wire (laughs) well that's why I threw in daydreaming that was just for you so thank you a little bit (laughs) thank you for centering your musical aesthetics around me (laughs) of course um yeah a lot of a lot of rock a lot uh definitely like some like adrian lenker big thief um i'm a big phoebe bridgers fan um david ramirez he kind of threads that like folk what a dream Um, boat he actually helped me uh with the some of the writing and production on getting around to it which was awesome i'm obsessed with him he is a um, great artist. I'm obsessed with that song, getting around to it. Thank you. And I was wondering, like, it's about procrastination, which some of those lines are so hilarious. Like, and I wrote down this line, but I can't say it verbatim. And it's like, basically, you're singing about how there's a little kid inside of you that could probably tear you apart, but she won't get around to it because she's procrastinating. Um, anyways, you have to listen to the song to get up to, to get it, but okay. So procrastination. So how has like focusing in on procrastination and because you're a smarty pants, you recognize that your procrastination is centered around fear and uncertainty. How has focusing on that changed your relationship to both of those attributes? To fear and uncertainty or to procrastination? Fear and uncertainty, which are connected to procrastination. You Mm -hmm. see what I did? I made a story web. You did. And you actually, you you wrapped it right up. That was, Mm -hmm. it wasn't like Mm -hmm. a trailing participle. Didn't start off well, but it ended really tightly. It was great. It was a beautiful story. (laughs) Um, Now I'm trying to remember what it was about. Uh, (laughs) Daydreaming. Yeah. Um, how did per- learning about realizing this help help me think about fear and anxiety? Was that the question? Yeah. Um, these are all very recent uh, <laughs> revelations, I will say. So, like, we're just we're working this out in real time right now, <laughs> um, live and, on the scene. Yes. Woo. And also, I believe today, what a weird thing to say, I believe today is my birthday, Um, but I think that it is, 
like when this is airing. So when's your birthday? Is it April one? It is. No joke. No joke. Um, but no, I was that that sounds like a tangent, but I was just thinking about like a I would like to have more of a proclamation on my birthday of like I've solved all the problems. But uh no, we're still live, still buffering. Um fear and anxiety. Yeah, I think that there's just so much there's so much fear. I'll just say I'll use I pronouns rather than like people because who knows what people feel. But I feel like there's just so much fear about getting things wrong. And it is just such, it's just so unhelpful. It just, there, no, no good comes from it. It just gets in the way. It blocks the door and it prevents me often from starting something meaningful or that could be really beautiful, even if it's flawed. And I think there's just a lot of anxiety about like, well, if I do this the wrong way or if I say the wrong thing or if I, you know, offend someone or make someone unhappy, you know, what does that mean? And um, I think from an early age I was definitely a kid that wanted to make people happy and smile and um, I think there's positive parts of that Um, but there's also I've just been learning like you know not everyone has to be happy all the time Um, at least on like my account Mm. or I don't have to be responsible for everyone being happy with me you should look into narcissism oh yeah I feel like there's some good traits there for you, I believe. Well, I i mean, I'm a songwriter, so I am a narcissist. I think I but have that. It, it might be a healthy dose, you know? That's true. Well, maybe I am a narcissist, but I'm just too pride, prideful. Prideful? Proud. Proud or prideful to let you know. So then I shroud it in people-pleasing. Ooh. Whoa. That's my birthday revelation. I'm I a feel, terrible person. I feel really manipulated. <laughs> We've been talking for an hour. <laughs> All right. Why don't we wrap it up by hearing about DJ Magic One? <laughs> um, well, it so it actually is DJ Magic. It's just the I is a one. DJ Magic is not uh, someone that I talk to that much about anymore she's kind of retired semi-retired i used to have a side a side hustle as a as a dj so i I mentioned i moved here to do an americorps job and i did that for two years and were you the um organization's (laughs) wedding dj i wasn't but americorps workers basically are paid nothing so i was looking to get creative on the side and um, I started by DJing a friend's wedding, my boss's wedding at the time. She, it was just like, oh, can you just, you know, DJ this? I had never done it before, but she knew I, you know, had good music taste, or I like to think I did. Um, and it was at the Park Plaza, downtown Boston, and my payment was I got to stay in the presidential suite and invite, like, eight of my, like, closest friends. Nuh-uh. And it was so dope. Like, there were, like, five bedrooms. There was a grand piano. We got the catering at the end of the wedding. We got them to bring up all the leftover food. 
from the wedding reception and we just had this like epic after party. So I think that was like, it was all downhill from there. Cause it was like, I could never be, I would like to be paid for every gig with the presidential suite at the park plaza. Um, but after that, especially in like the church world, like, you know, it's like a bunch of young people getting married all the time and, and you got to be at the ready because you just never know when it's yeah. going to turn into it's a wedding. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yes. So I just started, I, it was like word of mouth. I just ended up, I did about like 15 weddings. Um, I've done like some events at Harvard. I've done some like old people's birthday parties. And uh, yeah, it's like, it's a kind of stressful situation, but um very it's fun once you get into it again but back to like I guess to finish the web of my story that I started at the beginning it's like it is one of those things where you're really too like the two-way communication where you can real you can tell very quickly if people are like <laughs> digging what you're doing or if they're like ah I did I uh DJed a couple um south asian weddings and um i remember i had like a an older uh sri lankan man just like yelling at me about not playing enough sri lankan music and um i had like play his daughter had given me certain music to play and i had played all of it like three times and i was like i'm so sorry but definitely a lot of through the years like you either get people that are like this is the best night ever and then you get people who are like why didn't you play my song so it's mm. helps you get thick skin. It's good. But that's it's important. People remember food and music from weddings. So totally. it's high, high stakes. I think it would be an interesting podcast to listen to different wedding DJs from different countries talk about like the absolute jams that you have to play cuz I was talking to that band Middle Kids. I did an interview with them and they used to be oh in a wedding band. And they were oh, talking right. about, they're like, there's this one Australian artist, I don't remember who it is. And then like Hannah, the lead singer, she was like, this is getting really in the weeds. I was like, no, I want to <laughs> hear it. Like this one artist that you have to play at an Australian Australian wedding. And oh, then if you that. ever saw um, Dairy Girls, they, I, there's that. It keeps being recommended to me. I haven't yet. Oh my God. In. My favorite episode, there's a wedding scene and they play this like really obscure disco dance song called rock the boat and everyone freaks out and gets on the dance floor and does this like weird synchronized synchronized like seated electric slide type of that dance sounds awesome yeah so you got to watch that show i'm gonna go watch it right now actually i definitely so will i i love talking about that stuff because i have found that D- like there's djs have a very specific like science and like everyone kind of has their own and whenever I think the downside to starting to DJ is like anytime I would go out dancing as I was wont to do in my 20s um I would just like I couldn't enjoy it because I was like oh like I, I don't know I, I know like how you feel like it's like I I I am to summarize, I'm not. I don't like it when they like play like 20 second clips of your favorite songs because it's just like right when you get to the part. Like people, ultimately, people don't want flashy 
stuff where it's like, oh, like you did all these crazy sound effects and you played 30 seconds of every top 40 song. People want to be able to dance with their friends and sing along to the parts they want. You also at a wedding have to think about the different demographics and you mm-hmm. I always go with the chronological. Like you can't start with Lady Gaga followed by Saint Frank Sinatra. Like it's just it's a faux pas. So mm-hmm. we can talk offline more if you ever want to hear about the science <laughs> of DJing weddings. I would love <laughs> or to. Or if you want to hire DJ Magic. She's semi retired, but she'll for the right gig, she'll she'll dust off her, her uh Cans. Yeah, exactly. Cans. Yep, yep, yep. All right, Katie Jones, let's do the lightning round. I heard you've been listening to some Basic Folk episodes, so this will show me whether or not you've listened all the way through. This happens at the end of most of them. Uh, These are all very fun questions. You're going to enjoy it. I can't wait. All right, here we go. What was the first song you learned on the guitar? Uh, Reptilia by The Strokes. What is your karaoke song? Save a Horse, Ride a Cowboy. <laughs> no, it's not. I've only done karaoke twice in my life, and that was one of the times. And it was like so great that I was like, I don't need to do karaoke anymore. It's so fun. <laughs> Dogs or cats or something else? Dogs all day. Who is your first celebrity crush? Oh, um, the boy from Airbud. Kevin Kevin Zeger. Who is the nicest musician you've ever met? Elisa Almador. Oh, she is so nice. First album you bought with your own money? Oh, man. That you remember? Probably Switchfoot. Praise. The lead singer of Switchfoot has a new album coming out. Oh, really? Mm Mm-hmm. All right. It's on, like, Christian Capital Records or something like that. Really? I feel like he hasn't been in, like, the Christian music world for a long time. Well, listen. I haven't listened to them in, like, over a decade, so I I don't know. But I did like them. always there. Uh, (laughs) First concert. (laughs) Oh, gosh. I'm sure it was some terrible Christian rock. Uh, Yeah, it was. DC Talk. I don't even know what that is. You know, that's fine. I don't think you're you're lacking for anything. But if you want to look them up, they're 90s Christian rock, and it, it's really a moment. Mm-hmm. What was the last book you read? Uh, it's called If You Want to Write by Brenda Euland. It's a book from the 30s. Uh, it's this, like, really hilarious te- writer, uh, writing teacher and professor talking about how to write, and she's really funny and great. Flying or Invisibility? Flying. Star Trek or Star Wars? Wars. Last question. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Hmm. That's a tricky one. I'm just going to have to go with the coast of Maine. Yeah. Good answer. Um, All right, Katie Jones, congratulations on the new album. This has been really fun talking to you and can't wait to like hang out in person yes thank you so much for having me i am a big cindy house fan and basic folk fan and i just appreciate all that you do to support artists and this was a lovely conversation
Basic Folk This Week was produced by Sweet Baby Angel Laura McCarthy. Alex Stanton of Townspeople does our music. Basic Folk is proud to be on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. You can find all of the episodes of Basic Folk wherever you get podcasts and at my website, cindyhouse.net. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, like and subscribe, and hopefully we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Okay, bye.